When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is CNN Breaking News. And welcome to The Lead today. I'm Jake Tapper. Today, as the death toll from coronavirus nears 87,000 people in the U.S., President Trump is announcing more details of what the administration is calling Operation Warp Speed. This is the effort to develop a vaccine for coronavirus. The president today saying he hopes a vaccine can be achieved by the end of this year. And the new head of the effort, Monsef Slowey, formerly of the pharmaceutical giant GlaxoSmithKline, as well as Defense Secretary Mark Esper, well, they went even further. I have very recently uh, seen early data from a clinical trial with a coronavirus vaccine. And these data made me feel even more confident that we will be able to deliver a few hundred million doses of vaccine by the end of 2020. We will deliver by the end of this year a vaccine at scale to treat the American people and our partners abroad. We all certainly hope so. And yet at this event, announcing the leaders of this vaccine effort, President Trump seemed to undermine the very importance of a vaccine in some ways. Vaccine or no vaccine, we're back. But how are we back? The U.S. death toll continues to rise. It remains likely that we could lose more than 60,000 more Americans over the next two months. Not to mention, of course, the hundreds of thousands infected, some of whom may be scarred for life. Now, yes, the trend of new cases is generally going down, and that's great news. But there is no health expert who thinks the U.S. is out of the woods. Quite the contrary. Under what metric is the U.S., quote, back? Well, CNN's Caitlin Collins asked the president that very question. Unveiling his vaccine effort in the Rose Garden today, President Trump said the country would return to normal with or without one. I just want to make something clear. It's very important. Vaccine or no vaccine, we're back. And we're starting the process. Asked what he meant by that, the president offered this explanation. We think we're going to have a vaccine in the pretty near future. And uh, if we do, we're going to really be a, a big step ahead. And if we don't, we're going to be like so many other cases where you had a problem come in. It'll go away at some point. It'll go away. The president was formally announcing the leaders of Operation Warp Speed, his administration's effort to develop and distribute a vaccine. It is going to be a Herculean task. But at one point, the president seemed to downplay how critical a vaccine would be, though many health experts have viewed an effective vaccine as the only way life can truly return to normal. The president made clear he doesn't agree. You no, know, it's not solely vaccine based. Other things have never had a vaccine and they go away. He also repeated his hope that a vaccine can be ready by the end of the year. Some health experts have said that's unrealistic. And yesterday, the administration's former vaccine chief, Rick Bright, who was pushed out of his job, said he's doubtful it could happen soon. I still think 12 to 18 months is an aggressive schedule. 
and I think it's going to take longer than that to do so. The president said he's hopeful a full vaccine will be ready by the end of the year and available to the general public, not just for emergency use. Do you mean a fully approved vaccine for everyone, the full public, or a partially approved vaccine with emergency use? No, we're looking for a full vaccine for everyone that wants to get it. Not everybody's going to want to get it. But we're looking at a full vaccine. Nearly all of the guests in the Rose Garden today were wearing masks. But on stage, some of the president's top officials were and some weren't, including the president. I told them I gave them the option they could wear it or not. So you can blame it on me. Sources say Trump and his aides have questioned whether the coronavirus death toll is being overcounted. Today, the president said he assumes the numbers are correct. Do you think that's accurate or do you think it's higher than that? Uh, I don't or lower than that. I don't know. I don't know. Those are the numbers that are being reported. I assume they're correct. Now, Jake, you may have noticed the vice president was not in the Rose Garden today. We are told by sources that out of an abundance of caution, he's still been keeping his distance from the president for the last few days after one of his top aides contracted coronavirus. And Jake, you also might have heard that dull honking sound over all of the president's comments in the Rose Garden. Those are truckers out on Constitution Avenue. And today in the Rose Garden, you really couldn't ignore them. The president said they were protesting in favor of him. That is not true. They're protesting because they say that there is such economic strain and they want fair pay. All right, Kaylin Collins, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Joining me now to discuss CNN chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. And Sanjay, so much to discuss. Um, the president and the vaccine task force are clearly optimistic about the development and rollout of a vaccine as early as December or January. Obviously, we all hope that to be true. Um, but does it seem plausible to you? It, it, it's tough to call it plausible. I mean, it would be unprecedented, uh, Jake, and I totally agree with your sentiment. I mean, everyone is hopeful about this sort of thing. And we are talking about uh, uh, different types of vaccines, vaccines that have never been used before. So it's really hard to give a context here. You know, we talk about the fact that some of these vaccines can take a decade to make, uh, but those are really different types of vaccines. The type of vaccine uh, that they're talking about that I think um, uh, uh, they, Monsef was talking about in terms of the early data that he saw is based on what's known as a messenger RNA vaccine. People are starting to know these terms, Jake, but basically it's the genetic blueprint of a part of the virus. You stick that in the body and the body then makes more of that and then makes the antibodies to fight that. So your, your body turns into a vaccine factory. If it works, they're already going into phase two with this. If it works, potentially, you know, phase three by the uh, end of the year, uh, the idea that it would be manufactured, distributed, available for everybody by the end of the year just seems really hard to believe. Again, everybody wants that, but I, I, I don't know how that would work. Yeah, we talked to one of the guys working on a vaccine, and he said his biggest concern is the manufacturing capacity for whatever uh, they come up with uh, to make 330 million uh, doses of it would, would be quite an order. The president said something else today that I want to get your views on. He said, vaccine or no vaccine, we are back. I, I don't exactly know how one could say that, given the continued death toll, the continued increase uh, in cases. Um, what do you make of that? Well, Jake, you know, you, you and I have been talking about this for so many months now, and I remember still uh, talking to you on the day that the pause, the 15-day pause, went into effect. And, you know, there were some 75, I think 76 people who had died by that point and 4,000 uh, infections in the country. And at that point, the decision was made to put the country in a pause because of what was happening. 
I don't, I don't know. I mean, the virus is still there. The virus hasn't changed. It's still contagious. It's still uh, you know, spreading in the, in the community. Why now, when you look at the numbers on the screen, do you think, okay, now is a good time to start of be back, o- open things up, but presumably what he means. I mean, again, uh, you know, we say this stuff and people say, well, you, you're, you're pessimistic. You know, you don't want the country to reopen. Of course I want the country to reopen. You know, I'm, I'm in my basement like most of the people in the country right now. But I think that how do you justify opening things back up when the numbers are so far worse than they were when you decided to close things down? We need testing. We need to see downward trends for 14 days. We follow these numbers day by day, and people get excited when they go down or up for a couple of days. That's why you look for trends. We still haven't seen that reliably, and we still don't have the testing. It's, it's as simple as that. I mean, the equation hasn't changed, Jake. And Sanjay, this comes, uh, I've been talking to health officials and they've been talking about their concerns, uh, as you have been talking about, about reopening too quickly, acting as this, uh, this is over. President Trump said, we're back. And he said this amidst images uh, of, of, of packed bars uh, in Wisconsin. Um, President Trump went so far as to retweet uh, this man in a Florida bar. Take a, take a listen. I'm at a bar restaurant. We're all having a good time. Not a single face mask. It's not that bad, guys. I mean, it goes on to say, you know, wouldn't want the commies in the blue state to see us. Uh, but he said, you know, it's not bad. Everything's fine here. And you have a bar full of people, none of them wearing masks. It doesn't look like they're doing social distancing. I mean, the president retweeted that. Does that concern you? Yeah, of course that concerns me. I mean, you know, it's not bad. What, is, what does the guy think it was supposed to look like? You, you can't see this virus. It's, it's contagious. It's spreading out there. When you're wearing a mask, you're doing it not because you're trying to protect yourself, but because you're trying to protect others. I think just the entire way we as a society have decided to look at risk, what we, what we quantify as risk or how we quantify risk itself, is totally, you know, totally different now. Because when we're doing these things, when the people are at those bars, you know, what I think, and I think a lot of people uh, who are in public health think, is you then uh, are then moving around after that. You are then moving back to your homes. You're moving back to your communities. You're potentially taking that virus with you. If one person in the in that in that crowded bar setting had the virus, it could have spread. We've shown how one person could spread it to nine people within an hour uh, in, in these various studies. Then they go home to their families. That is the beginning of a cluster. It's a very hard thing to control. Then you got to start going back into lockdown mode. You want to do this slowly so that you can actually be on top of it and not go into cluster or exponential growth. It, you know, it, it, that these things can be avoided for the time being, and I want that as well. I'd love to be with that guy wherever he was. But we're not ready yet. Yeah, I mean, we lived through this before, uh, Sanjay, in February and March, when we were saying the president is not facing up to the risk here. And I don't know what kind of message people are getting. And then now we have 87,000, almost 87,000 people dead. I mean, not directly attributable to President Trump, but obviously we need to have uh, our leaders taking this seriously. Sanjay, stand by. I want to ask you about our next story uh, after we run it. Uh, After the Trump administration promised a vaccine soon, There may be no way for all Americans to get it. That's uh, the conclusion of a new CNN investigation. That's next. Stay with us for that. Plus, what if China develops a vaccine first? President Trump responded to that. That's coming up. And we're back with our health lead today. President Trump this afternoon addressed how his administration is preparing 
For the moment, a coronavirus vaccine is ready for use. This includes ramping up production of supplies needed for distribution, such as cold chain storage, glass vials, needles, syringes, and more. We'll have everything right on hand, ready to go. When a vaccine is ready, the U.S. government will deploy every plane, truck, and soldier required to help distribute it to the American people as quickly as possible. As CNN's Drew Griffin reports for us now, health experts are hoping that the federal government has learned its lesson after disastrous shortages of personal gear plagued the nation's hospitals earlier this year. If the vaccine for COVID-19 were to come today, there would be no way for all of us to get it. There are just not enough needles and syringes. I don't want to be in a situation where we can't deliver those doses because we don't have syringes and we don't have needles and we don't have the basic supplies to deliver that many doses of the vaccine. Michigan Democratic Senator Gary Peters first sounded the alarm last year. The pandemic only heightened his fears. And last week, he sent a letter to Vice President Mike Pence and HHS Secretary Alex Azar, urging the federal government to take immediate steps to ensure America is prepared to administer a coronavirus vaccine. Time is not on our side here. We need to get this done as quickly as possible. In a similar warning, a whistleblower complaint by Rick Bright, the demoted director of a key federal research agency developing vaccines, said his warnings about the shortage of needles and syringes had been ignored and that the U.S. needs between 650 million and 850 million needles and syringes. Bright may have been pushed aside, but in testimony before Congress yesterday, Bright suggested someone in the federal government may have been listening. I learned that they placed an order, the first order for needles and syringes on May 1st. And were the amounts adequate? I believe that it's for 320 million needles and syringes. And could you please describe the situation if every American does not have access to the vaccine due to a supply shortage? That situation would be catastrophic, honestly. The decisions have not been made yet who to vaccinate first, how to identify those individuals, and and how to um, stretch those limited supplies appropriately. Three contracts for vaccine supplies awarded in the past few weeks, totaling nearly $250 million, the largest by the Department of Defense for the U.S.-based production of 100 million pre-filled syringes by year-end 2020, with the ultimate production goal of over 500 million pre-filled syringes in 2021. Sean Paul, in charge of disaster response for one of the country's largest medical logistics companies, says it all adds up to enough. Makes it sound like, unlike PPE, uh, we're going to be in a much better position. We learned a lot of valuable lessons through COVID with PPE, and with that, we are preparing for the worst for the vaccination and being able to administer the full population should it be necessary. That comes with one big caveat, the unknown. Until we have something that is approved by a particular uh, supplier or manufacturer in the pharmaceutical space, it's going to be very challenging for us to, to be able to prepare for potential shortages on vials or on syringes or on needles. If estimates are correct, if the contract's fulfilled, the U.S. could have the supplies needed to inoculate the population when and if a COVID-19 vaccine is approved. Drew Griffin, CNN, Atlanta. 
Our thanks to Drew Griffin for that report. CNN's chief medical correspondent Sanjay Gupta is back with me. Sanjay, President Trump said today that they're ramping up production of vials, syringes and other equipment so that the U.S. is prepared once a vaccine is ready to, to be distributed. Mm-hmm. But do you worry seeing the issues that we had uh, procuring PPE and, and ventilators and more that that goal is too ambitious or that the administration won't be able to achieve it? I think we're capable of achieving this goal. Uh, you know, I think it's a question of, of now recognizing that there might be this demand. There will be this demand for these supplies and actually uh, making sure we're in the process of obtaining those things, which it sounds like from Drew's piece, uh, a lot of that is happening, you know, which is which is good. This idea that even before a vaccine is approved, even before it's gone through all the phases of trial, that this process is starting, that they're actually going to start manufacturing the vaccine, even if they don't know it works yet, because they just want to get ahead of the curve and take some gambles here and make sure the cold storage is available, make sure all the syringes and needles. Some of these vaccines have to be stored at a very specific temperature. Distributing them is going to, make, is going to be more challenging because of things like that. That's the planning that needs to happen now, even before a vaccine is ready. Well, it's great that they're on top of it. Uh, I hope it works out. If they're are still shortages of the vaccine once it's discovered, once it's manufactured. How does it get decided who gets the vaccine and who doesn't? You remember those early days of the virus when all sorts of really wealthy people uh, like NBA stars and the like were getting tests where doctors and nurses on the front lines were not able to. Yeah, right. And, and, you know, who's to say some of that won't happen again? I mean, you know, some of that happens when you have a, a scarce resources. But there is a whole protocol. I mean, there are entire textbooks about vaccine distribution and, and how you figure out the priorities. Some of it is, is per capita by state, just figuring out the populations of people. Some of it is figuring out where the virus is most circulating. So in denser areas and areas where you've had recent outbreaks, things like that. But typically, Jake, healthcare workers, uh, people who are particularly vulnerable, people who have pre-existing conditions, all the things that we've talked about that may pe- make people more likely to contract the infection or get sick from it, those are people who are going to be at the front of the line. All right, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thanks again. Uh, you can learn even more from Sanjay's podcast, Coronavirus Fact versus Fiction, available on CNN.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much, Sanjay, as always. Coming up, a major spike in new cases in one state two weeks after the state reopened as New York City's stay-at-home order is extended into June. We're going to take a look across the country next. Stay with us. In the national lead today, Florida is now one of the latest states with eased restrictions on gyms, retail stores, and restaurants. 48 states have partial reopen plans in the coming days while some, such as New York, are extending restrictions in hotspots where coronavirus cases have yet to trend down. CNN's Nick Watt now reports on what's become a piecemeal reopening plan nationwide. Across Louisiana, dinner and a movie is now an option once more, but your server might be masked. We really have, uh, you know, kind of crushed the curve. And because and it's due to our residents, really, they stayed at home. 48 states now have an opening plan underway today. Half of New York state begins its long road back. All I can do is get back to work and hope that they'll come. But New York's pause order extended another two weeks for millions more in the state, including everyone in New York City, unless numbers improve. We need a massive citywide apparatus testing, tracing. 
In Michigan, resistance to regulations goes on. The blue governor says they're red protesters. These are not just citizens who are unhappy about having to stay home. This is a political rally, essentially. That might actually delay reopening. It's the congregating of big groups of people who aren't wearing masks, who aren't staying six feet apart, that will perpetuate the community spread. In rural Virginia, another nursing home outbreak. 76 cases, eight deaths. And doctors in 18 states now investigating those rare but severe reactions in kids that might be COVID-related. The WHO just told doctors worldwide to be on alert. We're all putting our heads in cases together to really get an answer to what is driving this, the best treatments. And April's retail numbers are out. Another historic low retail sales down 16.4%. Clothing sales down nearly 90%. Most of the 50 states are going back to work in some form, so I like to look forward. Ford will start making cars again Monday, and restaurants will reopen in hard-hit Miami as the county looks to hire up to 1,000 contact tracers. Texas just set a record. Most recorded COVID deaths in 24 hours. Gyms and offices still scheduled to reopen Monday. In Vegas... You can now buy a mask from a vending machine at the airport as Caesars gets ready to reopen. In the new world, there will only be three chairs and nobody will be able to be within six feet. Good news from L.A. The USNS Mercy hospital ship just left after seven weeks supporting the COVID-19 fight. The curve here has flattened. And great news from New Jersey. Sylvia Goldshall, who lived through the 1918 Spanish flu as a kid, just recovered from COVID-19. She's 108. I survived everything because I was determined to survive. Now, here's the potential problem with all this uneven opening. Let's say salons are open in Georgia. You might get people coming across from Tennessee to get a haircut. And that's why... New York, New Jersey, Connecticut and Delaware are going to coordinate the reopening of their beaches so you don't get a crush in one state. And they're saying they're going to be open before Memorial Day. Here in L.A. County, this is going to be our first weekend with beaches open. So a test. Can we social distance in the sand? Jake. All right. Nick Watt in California. Thank you so much. Tomorrow night, join me and my CNN colleagues as we honor the graduates of the class of 2020 with a special two-hour event. Former Presidents Barack Obama and Bill Clinton, Wonder Woman actress Gal Gadot, LeBron James, and so many more will join CNN for the celebration. It starts at 7 p.m. Eastern tomorrow night on CNN. Coming up next, rising tensions, how China is responding to President Trump's latest threat. Stay with us. In our world lead today, after months of praising the Chinese government for its transparency and its handling of the coronavirus pandemic, President Trump is now ramping up his attacks on that country, and he did so again today. This came from China. It should have been stopped in China before it got out to the world. It should have been stopped right at the source, but it wasn't. White House Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany echoed that sentiment, saying that the president is frustrated This, of course, just one day after the president alluded to cutting off the United States relationship with China altogether. CNN's Kylie Atwood joins me now. Uh, Kylie, uh, how has the Chinese government 
responded to what the president has been saying. Yeah, well, in response to the specific comments that President Trump made yesterday, the foreign minister of China said essentially that it is in the best interest of both countries to continue to develop the bilateral ties between them. But that is noticeably more temperate language than we have seen from China with regard to these allegations by the U.S., these frustrations from President Trump over how China handled the coronavirus pandemic. And we should also note that as these rhetoric and these allegations have been thrown back and forth between the countries, there have also been new policies here in the Trump administration that have been announced. So just this morning, the Commerce Department came out and said that now any American company that wants to sell semiconductor chips to Huawei, which is a massive tech giant in China, is going to have to get a special license to do so. Now, that is going to create some tremendous hurdles for this Chinese tech giant. And China came out pretty aggressively and threatened some retaliation, saying that they could, you know, activate unreliable entities lists, they could investigate American companies. So this is really escalating uh, the tensions between the two countries, which could turn into something that's more than just rhetoric. The president said that despite the growing tensions, he's not concerned if China were to make a vaccine that we would be denied access. Yeah, he was asked today, if China is the one that develops the vaccine, would the U.S. have access? And he very bluntly uh, said yes. But, of course, he has also said in recent days that he has not talked to President Xi. He doesn't want to talk to President Xi. He has reiterated his frustrations with China. And, of course, the backdrop with regard to the U.S. and China and conversations over a vaccine is that just this week, the FBI and DHS came out with a statement saying that China is likely trying to use cyber attacks to steal the vaccine research secrets here in the U.S., that data uh, that U.S. researchers are providing. So not really creating an environment that is ripe for working together on vaccine research. All right, Kylie Atwood at the State Department, thanks so much for that. Neither snow nor rain nor heat nor gloom of night, but could coronavirus be the one thing the post office cannot overcome? That's next. In our national lead, the fate of what polls say is the most popular federal agency hangs in the balance. The United States Postal Service has been in trouble for a long time, losing billions of dollars every year for the past decade. But the combination of President Trump's ire and the novel coronavirus could theoretically put a final nail in the coffin. The Postal Service is a joke because they're handing out packages for Amazon and other internet companies. And every time they bring a package, they lose money on it. The Postal Service has long been a target for the GOP. And President Trump, in addition, does not like his coverage in the Washington Post, which is owned by Amazon's founder, Jeff Bezos, making the post office something of collateral damage in that war of grievance. But today, the House votes for a massive COVID relief bill that would provide the Postal Service with $25 billion, something President Trump blocked in March's relief bill. Their goal has always been to privatize, to make a profit off the uh, Postal Service for private purposes. We're for the public, uh, uh, having the Postal Service meet the public interest, not some special interest. President Trump just appointed a wealthy Republican donor and Trump ally 
as the new postmaster general, giving the president new influence over the agency, which is, of course, always in peril. Joining me now is Phil Rubio, historian, professor and retired postal worker. His new book, Undelivered, is out now. Thanks so much for joining us, uh, Mr. Rubio. So, so far, more than a thousand postal workers have tested positive for coronavirus. More than 50 have died. How has coronavirus impacted the agency? It's had a devastating effect on the Postal Service as it has on the U.S. economy because people aren't using the mail as much, especially businesses. There's been a drop off in revenue and because of a drop off in volume by a third uh, since the same period last year. So it's estimated the Postal Service has lost $13 billion already and could lose another $22 billion over the next 18 months. Of course, the Postal Service gets no taxpayer funds. It just sells postage. That's ever since 1982. Conservatives have attacked the Postal Service for years. They prefer private competitors like uh, FedEx or UPS. What, What makes President Trump's attacks on the Postal Service different than previous Republican attacks? Well, it's really unique. Um, we've never seen a president, a sitting president, attack the post, attack the post office um, like this. But I think we can get distracted too much because this has really been a growing trend among conservatives to privatize public institutions like the Postal Service. But to keep in mind, the post office is a 245-year-old institution, and ironically. One of Trump's uh, presidential heroes, uh, President Nixon, presided over the uh, change in format from the U.S. Post Office Department to a government agency slash corporation, the U.S. Postal Service, after the uh, 1970 nationwide postal wildcat strike forced the issue. And so we actually had a bipartisan mm-hmm. compromise between Nixon and congressional Democrats and postal, un- and postal unions. So President Trump has called the Postal Service a mismanaged business. He said he would not support any additional financial support uh, unless they raise package rates by 400 percent. Why do you think that's not a feasible option? Well, it's not feasible because every time uh, the post office has raised its package rates, uh, predictably, UPS and FedEx raise theirs. Uh, they take some of the business. If they raise it, um, of course, if they raise it too much, they'll price themselves right out of business. So they'll lose business, they'll lose volume, they'll lose revenue. And Amazon will just uh, be content to deliver um, more of its own. They deliver about half of it, their own packages. Um, the the massive debt that the post office, I'm glad you brought that up, about um, billions of dollars in debt, because almost all of that is a result of the 2006 2006 law that forced the Postal Service to pay $5.5 billion a year for 10 years into the Retiree Health Benefits Fund. So they've been carrying this massive debt, even though most for most years since 1995, they have they were in the black. And then starting in 2009, they were in the red. They would have been in the black almost every year since that time, even with the Great Recession, except for this imposed, congressionally imposed, um, I call it a tax on them. So just for viewers at home, why does it why does it why does it matter if it gets privatized? What's the worst thing that happens uh, if the U.S. Postal Service goes away 
and people use UPS, FedEx, etc. Why does it matter? Well, everybody uses UPS, FedEx, and the Postal Service at some point. What we have to remember is that FedEx and UPS only deliver to a fraction of what the the U.S. Postal Service delivers. It's the Postal Service is universal. It goes to all 160 million homes and businesses, including the last mile delivery. So your UPS package probably has a USPS um, sticker on it as well. And you know, when you think about what privatization means, it means you know, profit-driven as opposed to the one institution that we have that's an essential infrastructure, networking, uh, uh, infrastructure mm-hmm. institution that provides that has provided for American innovation and uh, development over the years. So every day, tens of millions of prescription drugs and invoices for small businesses and large businesses alike and bills, a third of a household pay bills still by mail, personal letters, business letters go through the mail, parcels, you know, of all times. And there's never been a good time to shut okay. down the post office, but, you know, that this is especially mm-hmm. a bad time. And by the end of September, it, the Postal Service could run out of cash if it's not given relief. All right, Phil Rubio, thank you so much. Appreciate your time. Coming up, they put their lives on the line for the United States, but one former official is raising the alarm, saying veterans are not being protected enough from coronavirus. Stay with us. In our national lead, veterans who put their lives on the line to protect their country are now facing a new and deadly battle with this pandemic. Based on the data that we have right now, If the VA's hospitals and state-run nursing homes were a state, that state would rank 16th for total coronavirus deaths. And some veterans advocates are now saying that the VA secretary could be doing more, much more, to protect this already vulnerable population. I felt like I had a target on my back. It's a terrifying new reality many veterans are facing, surviving in a pandemic world. Elder male with pre-existing conditions. That's me and every Vietnam veteran I know practically. And it's a growing fear in the community, especially after the Department of Veterans Affairs released disturbing new numbers. At least 985 patients known to have died with COVID-19, receiving some form of care from the VA healthcare system that serves 6 million people. 985. That's more than most states. Like everyone else, it was a little behind the curve. Outside of the federal system, deaths at many state-run veterans' homes have skyrocketed. This disease, once it got into these nursing homes and these, these veterans' homes, before anybody knew it, it was running rampant. Veterans' advocacy groups have had questions for the VA on any number of topics, including its use of hydroxychloroquine to treat the virus and whether it did sufficient outreach to veterans who were particularly vulnerable. Perhaps most importantly, however, is the question of oversight of state-run facilities. According to a report from the Vietnam Veterans of America, more than 550 residents in veterans' homes across the country have died from this virus. And not all states are reporting. And families of those residents have been forced to face unfathomable and painful realities as their loved ones fight for their lives, sometimes remaining in the dark as they wait to hear if their family member is still alive, as in Holyoke, Massachusetts, where more than 70 residents have died from COVID-19. I took a grease crane and I wrote on my car, is my father alive? 
Shame on you, soldiers home. And in New Jersey at Paramus, where 72 residents of one veteran's home passed away. They gave us only 15 minutes at the cemetery. But despite the VA partially funding and overseeing these state-run homes, Secretary Robert Wilkie is bucking the blame, instead pointing the finger at local governments. We take complaints. When we hear complaints, we cannot impose our will on those state venues. The VA press secretary tells CNN that federal law states that the VA, quote, shall have no authority over the management or control of any state veterans home and that individual states, not the federal government, quote, are solely responsible for the operation and management of state run veterans homes and any problems that arise within them. But the law also states that Secretary Wilkie can inspect any veteran's home whenever he wants. And former VA Assistant Secretary for Policy and Planning Linda Schwartz says Wilkie can create and enforce guidelines to hold these homes accountable. They have the authority to do, make changes, and they have in the past. And she would know. She was the Connecticut Veterans Commissioner for 11 years and managed all state-run homes there, directly dealing with federal VA oversight. And she says urgent action needs to be taken. There is a real need to do an analysis of what's going on here and what are the needs of the population. And it can't be something that takes years. It has to be now. Taking care of veterans is a great honor and a great responsibility. And as we approach Memorial Day in the middle of this pandemic, it will also be a moment for the nation to pause to reflect on the lives of veterans lost and what more might have been done to prevent it. It's sad to think how many we will be mourning this year who died because of a virus and not on the battlefield. But in a way, uh, in a way, the, um, the battlefield is in the streets of America today. When we asked the VA if they would do anything different, a spokesman said that the VA grieves for all of the veterans and loved ones affected by this heartbreaking situation. Before we go, we want to take a moment to remember another victim of coronavirus, an Air Force veteran who lost his life to the virus. Clifton Dowdy lived at the Minnesota Veterans Home in Minneapolis. Employees held a funeral procession for him, complete with a flag-draped casket. Dowdy was 78 years old. His daughter says that her dad loved everyone and had an incredible sense of humor. May his memory be a blessing. Tune in this Sunday morning to CNN State of the Union. My guests include Secretary of Health and Human Services Alex Azar, Ohio Governor Mike DeWine, and Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson. That's at 9 a.m. and noon Eastern, only on CNN. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. Have a strong and healthy weekend. I will see you on Sunday morning. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.